all over again. It's a remarkable thing to know that we worship a holy and perfect God. And we're going to get into the implications of that in the message this morning. But first, let's, let's take a little bit of a tangent. USA Today ran an article a few years ago uh, detailing the 10 most difficult things to do in sport. Uh, I'm not going to give you all 10, but I'll give you the top four. The fourth is to hit a golf ball long and straight. Right, Art? Long, long and straight. Number three, pole vaulting over 15 feet. Right, Karina? <laughs> Number two, and I hadn't thought about this, but it makes some sense, to drive a race car at mega speeds around the track and not die. And those Indy cars, they're traveling, what, 220 miles an hour. And then according to USA, USA Today, remember this is an American publication, right? The most difficult thing to do in all of sport is to hit a baseball thrown by a major, major league pitcher. You cricket players, you're going to argue that one, I know it, right? I never played baseball as a kid, but I fancied myself quite the street hockey player. Best on my street. Better by far than my brother, six, year old, uh, six years younger than me. And, uh, and better than the neighbor's kids, also four or five years younger than me. Now, the interesting thing about our street, we lived on a normal suburban street, but this is the 1970s. So uh, the economics of sports were a lot different. Our next-door neighbor, I've mentioned this before, was Dave Tiger Williams, enforcer for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Kitty corner to our backyard was Jerry Butler, uh, defenseman for the Leafs. Living just the next subdivision over was Daryl Sittler and Lanny McDonald. And so when we played street hockey, we often got to play with the power forwards of the Leafs and their vintage teams of the 1970s. And that's when I realized that I probably wasn't the best street hockey player on my street. Right? How do I grade out on the scale of performance when compared to Tiger's check? Because even when he wasn't trying, he could just sort of give you one of these and you wound up in the ditch. How do I grade out compared to, to Daryl's deke when he just goes and, and he's all the way around you? Or Lanny McDonald's famous slap shot, which I'm sure was toned down a whole bunch of notches and even still left dints in my father's garage he wasn't happy about. Until then, I had no objective idea where I stood on the curve. In my mind, I thought I was pretty good. Remarkable. I couldn't skate at all, but this is street hockey, right? Compared to my brother Wes, compared to the neighbor's kid, Jason, that day when we first played together, I got a dose of athletic reality. And it's hard sometimes. There's a great chasm between what constitutes really good hockey on Duran Crescent and, and what amounts to great hockey down at the ACC, right? I didn't even know that I wasn't good enough to know that I wasn't good enough. Does that make sense? It's this capacity for for self-deception, this limited, not just athletics, to, but to all areas of life that I want to think with you about just a little bit. Today's Baptism Sunday, and we're thrilled about it. And just before I, I came in here, I was leafing through our book, and I was 
looking back at the dates of baptisms, Ivy and Rick and Aurora and and Julie and and Augie and and all the way through the list. And it's it's just one of those incredible moments in people's lives. But what I'd love to do is think with you about the moment that precedes it, uh, the moment of decision, the moment of of confession, the moment of commitment, about how it is that we arrive at that moment. And I want to start in a strange place, but I'd like to start with that capacity for self-deception. Years ago, there was this study that was done, uh, and it was investigating the dynamics of incompetence. Somebody studied incompetence. But here are the findings. The first sign of incompetence is that it creates an inability to perceive incompetence. You know you're incompetent when you don't know that you're incompetent. When you're incompetent at something, you don't even have the ability to realize how incompetent you are. We deceive ourselves, not just about athletic ability, but, but our intelligence. I thought I was pretty smart. I wound up at university with a bunch of kids who were also pretty smart, and I realized I just don't even grade out close on that curve. We deceive ourselves about our talent, don't we? People stand up at the karaoke bar. <laughs> Never is self-deception more evident than Thursday nights at the karaoke bar when we sing with far more confidence, probably from a glass, than then a realistic appraisal of our talent should probably allow. We deceive ourselves about our appearance or about what the effects of aging are, and we try to pretend that it's not having an effect. Instead of saying, it's a natural thing, it's a beautiful thing, it's a good thing, we deceive ourselves and say, that's, that's not a wrinkle, it's just a shadow, that's not a spot, it's, uh, it's just a little bit of paint, whatever it is, we deceive ourselves. And we don't just fall victim to this kind of self-deception. We actually kind of encourage it in our society. That was the the striking observation of a book. And it's been in print for years, and it's been a bestseller for years. And if, if you have opportunity and you want to sit down to a really challenging, engaging read, I know it's at Chapters. I was just there Friday night leafing through it again. It's called The Narcissism Epidemic. The Narcissism Epidemic. And the key point, if you don't read it, the key point is this. We don't just uh, tolerate narcissism. We admire it and we cultivate it. Guess who Donald Trump names every building he's ever built afterwards? Right? Ted Turner, multimillionaire, media magnet, said, if I just had a little bit of humility, I'd be perfect. (laughs) How many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? This wasn't in the book. (laughs) How many narcissists does it take to change a light bulb? Just one, actually, because they hold the bulb and the whole world revolves around them. But we, isn't that awful? I'm not doing that one at 11. (laughs) Forget it. Nowhere does the inability to have an objective, reality-based assessment of our lives show itself more clearly than when we step into the spiritual realm, when it comes to issues of our moral character and the state of our own heart. Just how much duplicity is there in my actions? How much deceit still gets past my lips 
how much sheer, unadulterated selfishness breathes through my life. Many, if, if not most of us, we don't really want to take the time to ask those kinds of questions. How would my life grade out? Not by the standard of a neighborhood street hockey game, where I can always find a younger, weaker kid to rank myself against, but in the eyes of a holy and just and righteous God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We don't like the question. We don't actually like any of the words associated with the question. That's why we don't use the word sin or sinner anymore these days. Because it might offend somebody. It might hurt their feelings. But the words of Scripture are quite clear on this. The starting point for the gospel is just a realistic appraisal of how our lives are grading out. But all have sinned and fallen short, you know the verse, of the glory of God. That's the standard. That's the benchmark. All have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. Because that's what we were made for. The glorious goodness of God. Now, after Jesus had been crucified on the cross and resurrected on Easter Sunday and ascended into heaven at the right hand of God the Father, the Holy Spirit, the, the tangible manifestation of the presence and power of God, dropped in on this little band of followers. And the Spirit came with great power. And we have been reading these past months the account of what happened when God's Spirit got a hold of this little group of followers. Their exploits are detailed in the book of Acts. I'm going to take you back to the, to the opening point. We're going to spend a little bit of time today in chapter 2, in preparation for baptism. And by the way, go out and grab a bagel and come back for 1130. There won't be room in the seats, but for 10 minutes, just stand there on the edges so that you can cheer and applaud the goodness of God in people's lives. Will you do that? Please do that. In fact, if you want to come back at 10 after 11, you can also stand with parents who are bringing their babies forward saying, thank God for your goodness here in this little one. It's a great Sunday. Anyway, where were we? Pentecost. Thousands of people, Jewish believers from all over that part of the world had gathered together in Jerusalem. And they see this strange phenomenon, the manifestation of God's power in these people's lives, this little band of followers who claim to follow a crucified Messiah. And they wonder what's going on. And so Peter stands up and he gives the first Christian sermon, the first of the millions and millions that will be given over the next 2000 years. And here's the Coles Notes version. There has never been a man like Jesus. There's never been anyone who understood God like Jesus. Nobody understood life like Jesus. Nobody ever taught like Jesus. Nobody ever healed, manifested the power of God like Jesus. No one ever died like he did. And no one ever was resurrected in triumph over death like Jesus. And here's the culmination, the climax of the sermon. Therefore, Peter says, let all Israel be assured of this. This is Acts 2, verse 36. I see some of you looking it up. Acts 2, 36. Let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, leader and redeemer. Can you think about the raw courage 
it must have taken to stand there before a crowd and say those words, whom you crucified. This is not a crowd of spiritual slackers. These are people who had sacrificed time and money to travel from all over the Mediterranean world for religious purposes, to gather here in Jerusalem for the feast. They must have thought on the curve they were grading out pretty high. Compared to most others, this is the moral and the spiritual elite of the world. And Peter stands up in front of them and he says, in effect, your actions, your lives are what led to the crucifixion of the best man who ever lived. You kind of expect the crowd would turn on Peter. But maybe the Holy Spirit wasn't just working in that little band of disciples. It was working in the crowd as well. And so here's what they say. Acts 2, verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, what should we do? Here's what's going on. Jesus, Jesus tells his followers that the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when the Holy Spirit is going to come, it's, the Spirit is going to do some very specific things. It's going to convict people of sin. That's what Jesus says. And that's what happened in the crowd. And it still does. So let's talk about that for just a minute. But the conviction of sin, because it, it, it's so important and it's so misunderstood. Sin is not doing something wrong and then feeling bad about it. The conviction of sin is not doing something unjust and getting caught. Sometimes people get caught doing something wrong and it can be excruciating. Maybe only one person finds out, but it's your spouse. and It's painful. Sometimes people get caught and it makes national headlines. How many national headlines over the past couple of months, have been about people getting caught using power for sexually immoral purposes in politics, in media, in business. And there's great pain. There's pain for the victims. There's pain for the families of the perpetrator. Maybe there's pain in the life of the perpetrator themselves. That's not conviction over sin. That's embarrassment about getting caught, isn't it? In that moment, the pain is primarily embarrassment because people found out and your reputation has been ruined and your career has been ruined and and your future feels like it's on the rocks. But what I'm really in pain about is the loss of status and position. That's not conviction of sin. And conviction of sin is not the same as the fear of punishment. Have any of you ever looked in the rearview mirror and, and seen those red and blue flashing lights getting closer to you? <laughs> Time for mass confession, right? God, it was us. We did it. And then the question comes, that awful question. Do you know why I pulled you over? Don't you hate that question? Do you know? Conviction is not the same as being embarrassed when you get caught. Conviction is not the same as being afraid of the consequences. Conviction of sin is when I get a glimpse of who I really am and what I'm really capable of. How did I become the kind of person who could do that? How did I become the kind of person who cheats on tests? 
or on taxes? How did I become the kind of person who tells lies to get what they want? How did I become the kind of person who's so cowardly when you need to say the hard thing? How did I become the kind of person who wounds the people that I say that I love? The kind of person who can be so self-absorbed in the face of people who are starving to death every day. You're cut to the heart. That's conviction of sin. And it's a painful thing, you're sure. But, but it's probably the most wonderful gift that God gives to human beings. Now clearly, guilt can be neurotic and distorted and all mangled up. But the capacity to recognize sin and the capacity to recognize moral truth is one of the most glorious things about being a human being. And when you lose it, I think that loss is the loss of our humanity. So the people cried out. And Peter responds. They say, what do I do? Peter says, repent. Turn around. It's not too late. Repent and what? Verse 28. Repent and be baptized. Every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Part of why we need the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that we can't even see our own sin in our own power. As Sheldon mentioned, we've got this incredible little reprieve in, in the weather. It doesn't feel like winter at the moment. It sure did a couple of days ago, and it sure will again. You've heard people say, and they're, they're joking, but they're really not, that sometimes it feels like the winter season in Canada begins around October and ends around May. And you know it's here because the roads are covered in rock salt. And, and I made the mistake of buying a black vehicle because I thought that's cool and manly. My black vehicle hasn't been black since about October 31st. It's just covered in that slimy white mess of of rock salt and slush, and it gets not just on the side panels, it gets up on the windshield. And if you notice when you're driving at night with that, you can sort of see right through it. And you convince yourself that it's fine, I don't need to wash the car. But but then when the sun comes up and the glare hits that windshield, it's blinding. You, you can't see a thing, right? What was invisible at night is, is revealed for what it is, that filthy mess in the brightness of day. Why? Because we know the light of the sun is 500,000 times more powerful than any man-made light, like a lampstand. And really, you've got two choices. You can get your windshield cleaned up, or you can decide, I'm only ever going to drive at night. <laughs> Listen to what John wrote. John 3.19. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of light. Because their deeds were evil. We decide instead of getting it cleaned up, we'll just drive at night. And then we convince each other that the secrecy in which we hold our lives, the the, the secrecy, the privacy that's so important to us that it's necessary So the truth about us doesn't get out. 
I don't know, maybe the same dynamics that are at work in, in my life are at work in yours. Money, greed, impurity, judgment, gossip, hypocrisy, bitterness, ego. Can't even see it sometimes. Lost in the dark. On the street, playing hockey with a bunch of six-year-olds. Convinced I'm a star. And I never stopped to think about the reality of what it looks like in the light of day. In the eyes of God who is holy and truth-telling and, and perfect. And then one day the Holy Spirit comes. The, the blazing light and presence and goodness of God. And it makes suddenly all that stuff, all that sin impossible to ignore. And I see the truth. And it's painful. And the pain isn't just about other people knowing. In fact, it doesn't really matter that other people know. Because they're going to forget and they're going to move on. But in the eternal scheme of things, it does matter. The pain isn't just about some hurtful consequences now. That's not the big deal. The pain is about me and and my sin and, and my brokenness. And Peter says, repent. God, forgive me of all of that. Send me as much light as I can stand. Clean off the windshield, those things that that I can't see and I can't take care of and cleanse me of everything that needs to be cleansed in me. And now, the conversation around sin is not one around despair. It's not meant to make people feel awful. It's always done in hope. Saying that there is a God who who's in the forgiveness business, who loves to give mercy. And no child of his has ever run so far away that the moment they turn around, they can't glimpse him opened arms saying, yeah, come on back home. Repentance, it has this this other dimension too. Because it's not just about asking for forgiveness It's also about a new strategy for life. From this day forward kind of thinking. That's why the symbolism of baptism is so rich. One part, one season, one phase of life dies. And then a new one begins. My new strategy, I'm going to trust Jesus. Not myself. My my life isn't going to be just about me anymore. I'm going to surrender. I'll submit. I'm going to bend the knee. And I'll do what he says because it helps me. And I'll put my life and my future in his hands. That's the most important thing, isn't it? When I repent, I acknowledge my sin. I ask God to forgive me because of the witness and the power of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. And I make Jesus the one who I will trust. I commit myself to do what he says. He promises that he'll send the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it says people were cut to the heart. What should we do? Repent. It's Peter's response. And then there's this next step. It's meant to be kind of a picture. It's, it's a graphic, visual, tangible reminder of what's happened in your life. It's a way of sealing the decision. Peter says, repent and be baptized. If you're a follower of Jesus and you haven't been, that's the next step. Be baptized. It's a public way of expressing with your body the decision that you've made. 
It's a visible thing that, that points to a spiritual reality that you've experienced in your soul. And there's just so much symbolism to it. Buried with Christ in the baptism unto death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can begin a new life. And i got to tell you, the, the joy of getting it right. Those of you who are baptized, hold on to that moment in your mind and see if you don't agree. The joy of getting it right, of getting right with God, of, of having gone down another road in your life and turning around and saying, God, no, I want you, I want all that junk to be cleaned out. I want to be forgiven. I want to know your grace. I want to declare myself to be a follower of you. I want my life to matter for eternity. There is absolutely nothing like it. And I want to be part of a community. I can outshout that thing. It's okay. I want to be part of a community that declares and manifests reality that is worth changing your life for. There's nothing like it in all the world. So let me say, if you have never done what Peter invited those folks to do. If you've never said, Spirit of God, I want you to cut me to the heart. Give me all the truth I can stand. Clean me up. I want to be forgiven because of what Jesus did. Do it now. I mean, do it, do it right now. Don't just drift. Some of you have been attending church for months, sometimes even years saying, I believe in God, but you've never allowed the Spirit of God to push yourself to the moment where you say, all right, no more messing around. No more sitting on the fence. I'm declaring myself. That's what baptism is. You make your declaration. If you've never been baptized before God, it's, and you feel God kind of tugging at you. You say, you know what? I'm going to let the world know. Listen, I know people sometimes say, listen, do you need to be baptized in order to be saved? No, there's nothing magic about the water, about the ceremony. But I think the real question is this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, why would you begin your spiritual journey by neglecting to do the one thing that he asked you to do at the beginning? So in a little while, some of you will come back. We're going to welcome a group of followers, all men today, all men. We're going to welcome them into the baptistry and celebrate baptism. We're going to put them down as deep as they need to go, and then we're going to bring them up again. And you'll watch, and people will clap, and they'll cry, or they'll laugh, or they'll cheer. Maybe there's just a little bit more going on for you. Don't resist the Spirit of God if God is at work in your life. Let's invite Him to do that. Will you join me as we pray? Let, let this be a moment just between you and God. You know the Holy Spirit has lost none of His power. The Spirit still breaks through, sometimes in moments when we least expect it. It, it pierces our defenses. It cuts to the heart. And if he's doing that with you right now, then what Peter said all of those centuries ago still applies. And you just repent. And if you've never done that before, you can simply say to him, God, I repent of my sins. Would you forgive me?
I want to stop trying to do life on my own. I want to submit. I want to bend the knee. I want Jesus to be my friend and my guide and my Savior. You begin a new life today that will stretch out into all eternity. And you can pray that right now. And if God is tugging at you to be baptized, saying, I want you to have the courage to publicly declare yourself, you tell Him right now. Say, Lord, you matter more to me than anything or anyone. And go home and grab your bathing suit and come on back at 11.30. Father, your Spirit is at work here this morning. Would you cut us to the heart? Would you heal us? Would you help people that need to die to the past, let it go right now, and then bring them back to life, to, to real life? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.